0: So the last episode, 69, we recorded on 420, and today, somehow, is Star Wars Day! Happy Star Wars Day, everybody! Yay! Yay! I mean, that joke was funny when I was about eight years old, and it's still funny now, is
1: it? I've never been a big Star Wars guy. I'm I'm not like an anti-Star Wars guy at all. I'll enjoy me a little Star Wars, but I just haven't really been into much, other than The Mandalorian, which is fantastic. But who shot first? That's the question. We all know who shot first. Han shot
0: first. Come on. (laughs) Well, of course, joining me today, we have Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. Brent. Hello. Who you all know from Linux Unplugged. And we also have from our Discord for our community spotlight this episode, Fuzzy Mistborn. Hello, Fuzzy. Hello. Hello. Nice to uh, catch up with you again. We met you at the meetup, didn't we? Yes, you did. And you were the guy with the Steam Deck that we were all very jealous of and the electric car. And we'll get into all that business in just a little bit. But I think Chris <laughs> has got an update about his new show, festival.
1: Oh, really? You're going to? Oh, thanks, Alex. Yeah. Well, actually, I wanted to mention it here on the show because we are kicking off a total website rebuild project. And Alex, you joined me with Brent and Wes on the last episode. And we talked about what we want to do and how we kind of want to build the new website. And we're taking in ideas and we've launched uh, some GitHub projects around it. And so all of the details are in Office Hours 3. So if you go to officehours.hair3, then you can listen to that episode and hear what Alex and I had to say about what we want to do with the new JB website. And we're really looking for input because we have to have it done by the end of summer because Scale Engine, who we've been with for like 12, 13 years, I was just looking, they are no longer in the WordPress biz. Nothing like a deadline, is there? Yeah, and so they're getting out of it by the end of summer. And so we gotta get the website moved and we wanna rebuild it and we wanna self-host it, of course. So officehours.hair, help us like figure it out, join the conversation. We'll figure it out together. There's a link
0: in the show notes to a very active GitHub issue, actually, where there's lots of people throwing out lots of different ideas about how we can self-host different stacks, you know, anything from ghost to GitLab to Grav to hugo you know all those sorts of things like chris says there's an office hours episode where we all discuss the various requirements that we have i suppose and uh, trying to build like a podcast network
1: website you know where there are how many shows do you have like six eight yeah six shows i guess active five active shows then you have extras so six
0: yeah and then you've got a bunch of archive shows too which you want to present to people and then there's about I don't know, a million guests on all the shows that you need to update all their various content. It's, it's, there's a lot. And you think, well, we could design a whole database around this. You could design a whole CMS, you know, if you're not careful. So we're trying to be cognizant of the fact that people will be giving up their free time to help us and all the rest of that. So if you've got any opinions, any thoughts, please head over to the Jupiter Broadcasting GitHub organization and uh, give us your feedback
1: in the issue number eight linked in the show notes. I'm excited about what we might build. We've gotten some really good ideas already, things we hadn't even considered, like maybe the ability for certain community members to update episode pages and show notes with things that were either missed or maybe links that die. There's all kinds of ideas that are floating around right there. So we're just kicking off the conversation, but we also need to move kind of quick. It's one of those things. I can't tell you the number of times as a listener of a various podcast,
0: I go to the show notes. I'm like, what was that thing? And they didn't put it in the show notes. And I know that we are guilty of that, too, because I have listeners write in and tell me that we're guilty of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it would be great if they could, you know, submit their their feedback. Now, a few episodes ago, we had the orange one on for our very first community member spotlight. And today we're joined by Fuzzy Missborn. Hello, Fuzzy.
2: Hello. Yes,
0: yeah, so you're drinking a tasty beverage over there. What what do you have?
2: I have a beer from a local brewery that is a triple golden ale.
1: I see both Brent and our guest have a beer. I don't have a beer. What we actually
0: this is a hopped cider, thank you very much.
1: Oh, oh, okay. Okay.
0: So you and I have been talking for many months, probably over a year at this point in the Discord. I'd say we're pretty good friends in there. We've been talking about so many different projects and you know, EVs, for example. So many things in common. I thought it would be great to get you on. Uh, and talk about various things. So let's start with that electric car, shall we? I know it's not self-hosted related, but I'm really curious about
2: how your journey with the Ionic 5 is going. I've had it now for about a month, and so far it's been fantastic. Of course, the first two weeks of it, I go up to my parents who live about four hours away, and I drive down to Raleigh, which is about eight hours. So I put about 2,000 miles on the car in about two weeks. The only way to do it proper shakedown uh, test uh, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> exactly that was definitely an experience so i definitely got to try out you know the rapid charging and seeing how all that works how was that how was the charging because it was, was uh down what i-95 yes pretty much 95 most of the way the first time i did it, by my way down i was kind of ultra conservative and charged wherever i possibly could but on the way back it was only about two charges A little bit more comfortable in what the car could do, and I knew kind of what the range of the vehicle would be when it was saying, you know, you've got 30% left. I knew I've got X number of miles.
1: You were feeling a little more adventurous at that point, I see.
0: Well, you know, whilst you were busy in that uh, delicious old RV with Nixie Pixel, Chris, I was given a little spin around the block in the Ionic, and uh, Fuzzy put his foot
2: down a couple of times. That was fun. I was pinned back in my seat for sure. Yes, that is definitely, that still brings a smile to my face every time I drive it. I, I, th- I throw it in sport mode for a couple of minutes just to accelerate and just like, pew. That's like the boost noise. <laughs> <laughs>
1: pew, pew. Now I want to know, like, are you collecting or do you see any possibilities to collect metrics? You know where I go with this kind of thing. I start thinking <laughs> like, let's collect some
2: data. There is a home assistant integration, but it's honestly not super great, but that's not a fault of the developers. I mean, there's some stuff missing that I want to see added. But the major issue just is that Hyundai limits you to about 30 API calls a day. Yeah. That's not very many. No. So I mean the, the, the developer actually has put in, like there's blackout times at night where from like, you know, you can customize, it, but I think the default is like 10 p.m. to 6 or 7 a.m. It doesn't make any calls whatsoever just to try and preserve them for you. But yeah, it, it's kind of limited in what you can do. So what I do use is I use a better route planner which is great for planning trips because it shows you you know basically you type in I'm I'm it's, it's like Google Maps for electric vehicles and you you know say I'm coming from here and I'm going to you know to here going down to Raleigh and it'll say okay and you know here's the car I have and it'll basically figure out okay you know you're starting at this percentage battery you know the weather's going to be this you know the wind's going to be this so therefore it can figure out okay you need to stop here here and here and charge this amount to get where you're going and as part of the, part of the one of the ways I improve that is you can get little ODB two Bluetooth low energy devices and plug them into your ODB two port in your car. And a better route planner can integrate with that and pull the state of charge off the car. So therefore, it'll it'll update in real time. So, for example, like when I left to get down to Raleigh the first time, I said I was going to arrive, you know, my first destination with like 10 percent charge. I got there with like 30 and I could see it counting back up as it, you know, at, based on the real time telemetry it was getting.
1: That's a legit feature. I didn't actually, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even realize that electric cars had ODB2 ports. I suppose they have to by law, but it just never even crossed my mind. It just seems like such an old archaic, you know, the whole CAN bus thing just seems so old. You and I got burned by that automatic thing. Do you remember? Oh, I loved automatic too, even though they were slipping up all my data, but they tracked every drive that I did in the RV for the first few years. So I had this brilliant heat map of everywhere we had been in the RV. It was It was great, and it got all my fuel mileage info for me. (sighs) I'd love to have that again. We've talked about that a little bit on the show, trying to recreate that.
2: Yeah, there's an app called Torque that I've been trying to play with that might let let me kind of upload it into Home Assistant. I couldn't quite get it to work, and I haven't had a chance to go back to it, but that would supposedly let me upload that information directly into Home Assistant and have sensors and data that way. But honestly, I charge the car once a week you know, on on, on Sunday nights, a home assistant will ping me if the battery's below, you know, I think 50%. And, you know, I can go and plug it in. It'll charge up overnight in a couple hours. And honestly, I, I basically... I, you're only supposed to charge about 80% at any given... You know, you're only supposed to charge 100 if you're actually going to be going somewhere long distance. So usually 80% is enough to get me through the entire week. That's so cool.
0: So how about a seamless segue? Shall we switch gears? Oh! That was... <laughs> questionable top gear oh yes top gear where's jeremy i've been following your blog for a long time at blog.fuzzymissborn.com and there's so many posts on there that we could talk about but there's one in particular which really has my uh, interest peaked right now and that is the renovate bot one i'm curious to ask you what you're using renovate bot for and what your
2: experience has been with it so renovate bot i have run on my infrastructure ansible github repo and basically, what it will do is it will go through. I don't even. I don't even. I honestly, you can self-host it. I don't, so I don't know how often the publicly hosted one goes through. But it's honestly pretty fast. Like maybe in every hour or so, it runs, and it basically runs through whatever I tell it to run through, and will tell me, for example, for mine, it'll tell me if there's new Docker images available. You know, for all my Docker Compose stuff, I'll you know state you know, home assistant slash, you know, whatever slash, what is, what is the 2022.05.01. And it'll go through and say, oh, well, there's 0.02 available. And it'll create a pull request on the infrastructure repo that I can then go in and say, yes, you know, merge this or, uh eh, hang on, this is actually a beta or, oh no, I'm seeing there are some issues with it. So I don't actually have to merge it until I need to.
0: So what exactly does it do? It, it's like a, a GitOps-style way of working, right? It looks at the upstream images and says, you know, there's a new Home Assistant container, and it creates a pull request, right, uh, against your repo, and then
2: and then what? Basically, that's it. It creates a pull request. I can see... Yes, you know, it basically you can actually even you can, you can customize. I don't even honestly scratch the surface of what it can do. You can you know go ahead and auto merge you know minor updates. So if it's like you know a .01 release, you can tell it just to automatically merge that for you. You know and save the major rever- revisions for you know manual review. Or I mean, it, it honestly I I, can, I barely scratch the surface of what it can do. I know I know a lot of people use it for maintaining their. Uh, dependencies for all the different you know projects they'll use it for and they'll have just renovate bot go through and just automatically update and merge a lot of the dependency upgrades
0: now another post that you have on your blog is your love hate relationship with drone.io but before we get there and because you mentioned top gear a moment ago we do have the top gear style leaderboard storage question which one of our amazing listeners has added to the self-hosted wiki so what we're going to do is set some rules, right? It's raw storage. How much raw storage do you
2: have on your land? Here's the—I'm going to maybe cheat a little bit. So I have about ten terabytes that I store off-site with a, you know, uh, external hard drive that I leave in the office, you know, at work. So that way, I have, you know, cold storage. So if we include that, it's about eighty terabytes. But we don't include that because we literally just said on your LAN. <laughs> I know, but, but it's on my LAN for like, you know, a couple hours a month.
0: <laughs> unless, unless we count tail scale as the LAN these days. So who knows? Oh, boy. What do we think, audience? 70 or 80 terabytes. Let me know in the chat and uh, we'll, we'll
1: submit a pull request to the repo before the end of the show, hopefully. I need to do a calculation on my end now that we have these new servers in-house, too. There's two boxes, and each have 48 terabytes of storage. And then we have 24 terabytes of storage in the old server. Not to mention that the Bitcoin node has what, two? Is it
3: two we threw in there?
1: Eight terabytes. Eight terabytes. In, <laughs> oh. Yeah, in the Bitcoin node. Yeah, that was an easy still that you shucked. Yeah, well, and then hid in the a screen. drawer for a year or two. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I should do the final calculation just so we have it up to date. Final All right, counting. so... We're going with uh, eighty terabytes, then, are we? Eight zero. Oh, is, oh, that's because he's that's he's because everybody likes him in the Discord. That's what's up. <laughs> oh, thank Jeff you, Gilling, thank I'm you, sorry. thank Jeff you, audience. Gilling has eighty four terabytes.
2: Oh. Oh. oh,
1: so that puts you in fourth spot, Fuzzy. Good job.
2: Yeah, I've got I've got some more sitting in you know the back bin, but I won't conclude that.
1: Well, what you do is when you get it online, you come back on the show, and then you can you know
2: beat him. I actually have to get more room in my storage server there is i am maxed out (laughs) that's just it (laughs) density is a thing people
1: hey man it's not my problem if you want to be on the winner board or not i mean it's not my problem (laughs) you just got to do what you got to do
0: all right so should we get back to the drone.io love hate relationship thing what's that all about
2: i'm actually not an engineer or any kind of technical field i'm a lawyer by profession so i sort of dabble in all this for fun And so I started looking at Drone because there were some things that I wanted to automate in terms of building Docker images and some other stuff. And I know GitHub Actions was out there, but this is self-hosted. I want to learn how to do this all myself. So Drone is a um, CI, CD system with continuous integration, continuous deployment, where basically you can, it's very similar to GitHub Actions or Jenkins or some of the other ones that are, I think Circle CI is another one. Basically, you can do it anything you can do like, in a bash script. Like I basically use it to do bat- a bunch of bash commands on some things. It builds a bunch of my Docker images for me. I build actually, uh, one of the recent things I did was I actually started ha- building an Ubuntu server image every week, that like, gets deployed into a Nextcloud. So that way, I just have a constantly up to date cloud knitted ISO image.
0: I found a few issues with Drone myself actually. Like just just for no apparent reason, a job that I've set up, the build will stop running automatically for no for for no apparent reason like i will push something to my git t instance the build will detect that it's it's been pushed but nothing happens and i can't figure out exactly quite what's going on there so i delete the build in drone and then i recreate it and it's fine for a couple of weeks and then the same thing happens
2: and it's it's infuriating if i'm honest drone is but the so the issues i have with it as i kind of laid out in the post were you know, there's it's really good, but the documentation was pretty poor in some ways. Like but the one thing I remember, I was actually I was looking at the poster again recently. Cron, cron jobs, you couldn't tell it a time zone, so therefore it defaulted to you know GMT, you know Greenwich Mean Time, and I couldn't figure out how to get it on my time zone, which was annoying. So I had to always think five hours difference. Hey man, I've made a career out of that.
1: But um, bumps actually, I'm just kind of curious, because you did tease a little Home Assistant action there. Can you give us just kind of a rough idea of the Home Assistant setup, what it's running
2: on, and sort of the key things you have it doing for you? Just like a picture. I run Home Assistant in Docker. It's running on my Proxmox server downstairs in the basement. The main backbone of of what I run here is Z-Wave. All my switches are Z-Wave. I have a bunch of sensors that are Z-Wave, though I've started using a lot more Zigbee sensors just because they're cheaper, and I found they work a little bit better than the Z-Wave. Better in what way? I so I got these one. I got these D Wave sensors that are that were from a company called Dome. I think was the name Dome, and I think they've gone out of business since they made these. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. So they they work. Oh, they work pretty well. But they're also I think they were about thirty five or forty bucks versus the Zigbee Aquara buttons are like twenty. So I have them all over the house because one of the big things I have here is I have all the lights are on automation. So every time motion's detected, you know, with certain current parameters are met, the lights will turn on, and then after a set period of time, they'll turn off. Sure,
1: nice. Did you, then I assume, go through the Z-Wave migration that I have been putting off?
2: Yes, I did. I am on the Z-Wave JS. I've been on it for probably over a year now. Oh, rub it in. (laughs) Originally, what I had done was I actually... I got because the Z Wave network rebooting took like 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes sometimes for me to reboot Home Assistant, where it would just sit there spinning and it would take forever for the network to come back up. And so I actually got tired of that to the point where I actually created a separate Home Assistant instance that only ran Z Wave. Huh. Interesting idea. And I bridged it with MQTT to my main instance.
1: And are you you're still doing it that way now?
2: No, no, no. So I was doing that for a while and then the open Z Wave came out and I'm like, oh, let me give this a try and see if this is better. And it was, but then obviously that got deprecated and moved on. So I'm like, well, I'm kind of on a dead end here. I've already done the pain once. I might as well change it all. So I upgraded to the Z-Wave JS and honestly, it's worked brilliantly. There's been a couple of things where like the lock I have, the Schlage lock, I had to create a couple of sensors to kind of get back some functionality that was default on Open Z Wave. For, like, you know, what guest code and you know, what door codes use. Cause I, one of this, one of the things I have is if a door code is used, like if I create a one time guest code, if it's used, it'll actually delete that code after it's used. That's great. That is cool. So it recycles once a week. I get a, I get a, you know, Telegram ping saying, here's the new guest code. I can give that out to people if they need to get into my house for whatever reason, and then it'll delete itself.
1: I would imagine you're probably in pretty good shape too, because. I thought I I thought I heard today on the live stream that the Z-Wave JS maintainer now works full time for Nebukasa, so they're going to be probably keeping that
2: in pretty good shape. Yes, I had heard that. I think I'd seen that as well. And I'm act- so I'm actually in the process of building a new house. And so I'm actually going to keep using Z-Wave there for the switches just because I haven't been able to find any kind of Zigbee equivalent that allows dimming and switches for a reasonable price. I know Innoveli just came out with their blue switches, but they're like $45 a switch. The brand I like is zoos or I guess sell by the smartest home and they're about $25 a switch. Yeah, Z-O-O-Z
0: is the, uh, the brand. Now, I know that you have some, like, whiz-bang traffic light system to tell your kids it's okay to get up in the morning. Like, as a new
2: parent, I I need to absorb this. Tell me. Yeah, I want to hear about this, too. One of the things that I did that my wife absolutely loves is I have a Raspberry Pi that I installed Volumio on that acts as a sound machine. So it just plays white noise for the kids, and there's a door sensor on the door that when it's closed and the light turns off, it turns on the sound machine. I've gotten through different variations of how you turn the sound machine off in the morning, but it'll also automatically turn off in the morning. What I do is actually that's kind of been handy for doing things like the okay to wake clock, um, which are useful for toddlers because they obviously can't read a clock yet, but they can they do know their colors. So my three year old for a long time, what I do is about an. It used to be an hour, but then he started getting, you know, he started getting getting up earlier. So now I push it to about a half hour before he's supposed to wake up. <laughs> I have a Z Wave bulb in his room that will turn on red, and that's kind of he knows it's, you know, if he wakes up, he's not allowed to get out of bed. He still he still does sometimes, but most of the time he knows that if it's red, he's not supposed to get out of bed. When the you know whatever the time actually strikes that he's allowed to wake up, it turns green. The other thing I've done is I have an ESP board running WLED under his bed. That also, if he gets out of bed in the middle of the night and the door opens, the light turns on red, pretty dim, so that way he can see and, you know, not trip over his feet or, you know, actually get into bed at night. He finds that to be a lot of fun. That's really cool. I mean, it's pretty cool of you to keep your kid in their bedroom until midday, but (laughs) I wish midday, usually 5 a.m.
0: I
3: know, (laughs) yeah. Speaking of quality of life improvements, like, I could see how that would make the entire household just way better instead of this random, random time thing that many of us have experienced
2: it worked well for the first little bit he's gotten he he goes in in phases of obeying it and not because again he's three so i can't exactly fault him hey maybe i need to get one of those for my wife (laughs) well actually one of my one of my all-time favorite automations i have is so i i have it on my blog somewhere but you basically i have two pieces of aluminum foil that's over a piece of cardboard and i have it underneath the bed tied to an esp32 and when I get into bed at night, the lights all turn off. Ah, that's great. That's hilarious. And if one of us gets out of bed at night, the light turns on. Dim- you know, again, reds so that way you can see and not trip over all the stuff that's on the floor.
1: Is this motion? Is it pressure sensing? What's happening?
2: It's pressure sensitive. So basically, it's when the there's enough pressure on the uh, cardboard, it basically pushes through. There's a capacitive. I don't know if it's capacitive or whatever it is, but there's there's enough of a connection.
0: It changes the resistive load so that the ES- ESP can pick up that slight difference and
2: uh trigger based on that you nerds (laughs) honestly i was shocked at how well it worked me again like there's like you know sleep iq sells like a 200 hundred dollar version of this kind of a thing i think i put it together for like 50 bucks well
0: fuzzy thank you very much for coming on i think you're going to stick around for the second half of the show is there anywhere that uh whilst you've got the mic uh you'd like to send people blog.fuzzymissborn.com well very good and of course on the discord as well yes that's probably one of the best ways to get me if you want to talk to me Now, today for the show, I thought I'd spin up a Google Analytics alternative called Plausible. This is a lightweight open source web analytics engine. Hold on. I've got a Google, uh, what do you call it, screen on my desk next to me? Oh, yeah, the uh, assistant. I think it's grumpy because it's literally just pulled up. It's time to ditch Google Analytics on the screen. (laughs) It's Uh listening. (laughs) (laughs) It knows now. Now they've logged that. Absolutely, yes, yeah. so I'm in trouble with the big G. But anyway, this plausible thing doesn't require any user acceptable cookies. You know that annoying GDPR pop-up thing? It's fully compliant with that, as well as several other things. It's made and hosted in the EU. So let me clarify, there is a hosted version. I'm talking about the self-hosted version, which is just something you can run in a container. I chose to put mine up on Linode, but you could run it at home, any way you like. I found the setup process was kind of a pain in the bum oh really it took me about two or three hours to to get through in the end the reason for that is because to spin up this thing it's about i think i think it's four containers as a database there is a it's like a queuing engine like a redis style thing called click house there's the app itself and then there's an smtp relay so those four containers come together to form the app that is plausible but of course their documentation doesn't quite tell you all the little tricks you need to do and all the environment variables you need to specify to get it up and running properly which is super annoying the docker compose script that they have actually linked in their documentation is about two years old and so i was going through following this thing and looking at the version numbers and then i thought right i'll just go and check the latest tag in docker hub yeah Two years old, completely out of date, hasn't been touched. So then I went to the Real Orange One's uh, GitHub and looked at what he's doing, because I know he runs Plausible too. And his GitHub repo combined with their documentation, I eventually got it up and running. And once I did, I was super-duper happy with this thing. You know, I had to embed a little uh, JavaScript uh, header in each web page that I wanted to track. And within a minute or two, I could see people showing up straight away. So my mkdocs website at perfectmediaserver.com my ghost blog at blog.ktz.me. I even put self-hosted.show on there as well, just as a test. And i got to say, it was it's pretty flawless. Are you getting
1: real-time numbers? Yep. Ah, I love that. Okay, so you took a couple hours to get up and running. And now once it's up, is it something that you're putting like on the public web? How is that working? Is it behind a firewall? And can you give access to others? So there's a few different things you can do.
0: By default, it's limited to authenticated users, you know, to the admin user that you create and any other users that you you create in the app itself. But when you and I were talking before the show, I thought, oh, it'd be cool if I could just show Chris what I'm doing here. And so for the self-hosted.show thing, I went into the site settings for that specific site, and there's a whole list of things I can do. So I can not only make this publicly available I've just switched this on, so I'm actually going to put this in the chat room so that the live stream can go and have a look at the analytics that we pulled up today on self So that's a public version that we can do, but I can also give specific users like a, an obfuscated link. So I can say, right, I want to share this specific thing with this email address, and I'm going to give them a password, and it expires after a certain length of time.
1: Can you imagine doing that for like a sponsor or something? Right. That is a fantastic feature just from like a, working with somebody for a short period of time. The one thing that I, I found once when you gave me the link and I, and I kind of looked around in there is it doesn't seem like it goes as deep maybe as Google Analytics does. Like Google Analytics, you could just keep drilling down and down and down and getting more specifics. This is a little higher level. Like it tells you everything you need to know. Your unique visitors, your total page views, your bounce rate and the average visit duration, and, of course, your top sources and your top pages and the locations in which they come from and the types of devices they use. So it's all, it's all what you need. It's not Nothing's really missing, and it would be fine for what we use, but it did seem like maybe not quite as detailed as the Goog stuff might be. Do you agree with that? That's the price you pay
0: for not having surveillance capitalism be the driver of everything. Right. I'm not trying to get political, but I am going to have a little bit of a rant about the the death of democracy and social media and everything in the last six to ten years. And I could go off the rails, but I'm not going to here. I'm going to keep it on topic. And, you know, that's that's one of the things I like about Plausible, actually, is that because it's so lightweight and because it's so privacy friendly and privacy focused, I turned off Privacy Badger to make it work on my web browser. But I didn't, you know, I had a look at the trackers and it was very minimal what it was doing compared to what Google Analytics
1: does. I really like that. I mean, for me, that's a feature. I completely agree. We stopped using Google Analytics just because I'm creeped out by Google. But, you know, I didn't really replace it with anything. So something that we could run ourselves on our own infrastructure and, uh, you know, use that data just so we get an idea of maybe how our website's performing. Because, you know, one of the things you can figure out is maybe there's something wrong with the site. Maybe there's a design issue. There's there's insights that you miss. And, you know, your web page... For online businesses is the front of your store so that's pretty great and they i guess they do have a pay version too as well right so if you wanted to you could go all in on their hosted version doesn't look like it's that expensive unless you get like millions of views then it gets up to like 90 bucks a month if you get 2 million views
0: yeah i suppose compared to google's low low price of free but you are the product it's expensive but i'd rather support companies that are willing to give their software away like this than google
2: sometimes now, Fuzzy, I know that you use a different one. Was it called Umami or something? Yeah, I think it's pronounced Umami. I know, I think the orange one on Discord was talking about Plausible at one point. So I was like, oh, I kind of want to get away from Google too, like everybody does who self-hosts. And so I went and tried to, try to spin it up and I ran into the same exact problem you did where I'm... Generally, I try and avoid apps that require more than like two containers. I, I just don't like ones that are that complicated. I just feel like it's defeats the purpose of Docker. Like I remember one time I tried to spin up a Unify thing and it was literally like 10 containers. I'm like, no, no. So Umami is only two containers. There's the database portion of it that I can run in MariaDB. And then there's the actual Umami collection thing. And from looking at what you posted on Discord and the, the website, Umami looks pretty much exactly the same. I don't know in terms of like features and the dashboard and everything, but like I can see the same exact things where I can see what pages got hit where the source was from, the country, you know, desktop versus laptop versus tablet, all that. I can see the same thing. So if you're looking for something a little bit simpler to set up, it might be a decent option. I'll put a
0: link to Imami in the show notes.
3: Now, Alex, when you were showing me earlier today, plausible in your excitedness, you were describing the different containers and how at first, maybe once you're getting into it, it's a little bit more complex to get set up but you did say that that was actually a a really nice engineering decision for scalability can you talk on that a little bit
0: yeah absolutely so if, if you look at the way in which say gitlab is architected right they they provide a big bastard container that is like six gigs of ram does eight million processes and completely is antithetical to the entire purpose of containers and microservices right it's one big monolith that they deploy and if you want to spin up an extra worker or anything like that like it's just it's just a mess and i really hate that way of doing things and the the unified controller and plex is kind of the same right it has a database built into it and actually if you're thinking about it it would be nice if plex had a separate database container that lives somewhere else that i could back up and version independently of plex itself and that's one of the things I liked about Plausible is that because it has so many containers you've got you've got that queuing engine the clickhouse thing I talked about that operates in a similar kind of space to Redis that basically takes all the requests in in real time its only job is to listen and receive stuff and then plausible has workers that goes and processes those requests in in real time now a poorly architected application would only have one container doing that, and it would ingest all of that stuff into the primary container, and then when that queue or that buffer or whatever it is gets full, the container would start to slow down, it might have a memory leak, it might crash, all that kind of stuff. But by having the queue somewhere else, you leave Plausible itself as this controlled environment, and it's able to not fall into that same trap as a lot of other applications do. Also, the data store being an external Postgres
2: database, mm-hmm. I have no problem with that. Yeah, no, I don't have an issue with databases being separate. I just, I don't know. When I start seeing that many containers, it just it just becomes frustrating for me to have to manage. And no, I I get it. It it puts you off, doesn't it?
0: You you sort of look at this thing and you go, I can grok and understand this in three seconds if it's one or two containers. But if it starts to get to three or four or five or more, you're like, eh, I'll do it next time.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: That's sort of my line, too. My last question on it, Alex, really is, did you notice much in terms of load time difference on the sites after you put it on there? Because, you know, you toss a little bit of JavaScript in the header, essentially, and then you're off to the races. Did you try benchmarking or at least refresh and see if it seemed any slower? Because I've also experienced that. I used to use a, a locally hosted analytic software that actually slowed the website down, so we had to bail on it. I personally didn't notice any difference,
0: and that's unless- Totally anecdotal, but I run Privacy Badger anyway, so I don't have a lot of Google Analytics and a lot of JavaScript running. Anyway, what I will say is, on the plausible website, you know, take with a grain of salt. They say that their script is forty-five times smaller than Google Analytics, so
1: smaller tends to be faster.
0: Yeah, and th- and they reckon that because it's so much smaller, a site with ten thousand monthly visitors will save four and a half kilos of co2 emissions per year simply by switching to plausible so do your bit for the planet people right
1: (laughs) drop google to save the planet
3: (laughs) alex we've been having a few adventures why don't you tell us a story
0: well uh, i took brent down to my basement the other day (laughs) Uh, he still has all his limbs it's okay I think they're all still intact anyway, because uh, one of my hard drives has been dropping off the SATA bus this week. I, I I didn't know why. And so we went down and took a look at this thing. And I think I did this maybe two or three months ago. I took the cable out and then put the cable back in. And it worked perfectly for another two to three months.
1: Oh, yeah, that's what I've been doing with my machine here. <laughs> you guys are <laughs>
0: awful. <Right?
1: laughs> well, hey,
0: look, sometimes it ain't stupid if it
3: works, Brent. Yeah, but it is almost guaranteed to only work for a short period of time.
0: No, not at all. Not with cables. In my experience, cables can be finicky little buggers. You need better ones. Maybe there's a little vibration something got loose. Exactly. I learned long ago to put SATA cables with the little clips on because the ones without clips do, do vibrate out. I think my issue is likely I'm not running out of hard drives. Yeah, yeah. I think there's about 10 spinning drives in this server. You know, it's quite a few. So there's a lot of vibration. So realistically it could be a cable it could be some crosstalk issue with all those SATA cables running together they're plugged into a an HBA card which is a SAS cable so it's four SATA cables going into one SAS plug on an HBA card so I was thinking maybe it's a bad cable so I ordered a new cable off Amazon put it in and then you ordered the short one realized it was too short and thought (laughs) I'll just go and grab a SATA cable just to tie us over and then found in the drawer that I actually already had
1: the correct cable. Oh, I've done that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that for sure. Uh,
0: so, anyway, I connected up the drive and it, it wouldn't mount. Proxmox was going crazy with, you know, XFS errors. And I was like, uh oh, here we go. Smart wasn't showing me anything, but I've seen this before and it usually means the end of the drive in my experience. So, brought the drive upstairs, took it out of the server, brought it upstairs, uh, connected it to my little diagnostic station I've got behind me over here. And uh, ran, was it XFS Repair? Yes, it was. I think. And that uh, rebuilt the the log or the, I don't know, something like that. The journal. Yeah, that's it. It took a good five, ten minutes to do that, which was a bit squeaky bum time. (laughs) And then it just mounted perfectly. And, you know, I was listening to the drive the whole time it was on the table next to me for any audible noises. You know, I've heard a drive clicking before. And it seemed fine. It was running cool to the touch. It was behaving properly with the testing that I was doing. So I thought, okay, let's put it back in the basement
1: server. And so far, so good. Oh, I thought this was going somewhere completely different. (laughs) I mean, it could. That'll be the next episode.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Raid is not a backup, people. This is true. Alex, I'm curious what you think the issue was and what you think the issue might be considering it still
0: seems a little kind of like it may happen again seems fine now i actually ran a bajillion snap raid checks and fixes and sinks and rebuilds and everything i could throw at this drive to stress it without actually wiping it and doing like a bad blocks run or something just just to try and poke the bees nest a little bit and for me, I think it's I think it's going to be fine. But originally, I suspect there was either an issue with the power supply cable, and maybe it, it sort of the voltage dipped slightly and it dropped off the bus a little bit in the middle of a write transaction or something, and that corrupted the log, or the data cable was bad, which I have replaced now. So you know, in terms of variables and stuff like that, if if something goes wrong with it again, I will know it's not the cable. I will know it's the drive. Now this is a shucked drive originally, and it's still within warranty. So actually. Part of me is kind of curious just to send in to Western Digital and see what they say. Did you keep the shucked bits? No, there is some like, I forget the name of it. It's like Magnuson Moss Act or something that you can can quote to them.
1: And they have to fix it either way.
0: Yeah, because they can't prove that my shucking broke the, you know, the whatever it is inside the drive. That is shockingly pro-consumer. I know, right? It's almost like we're in Europe.
3: (laughs) Chris has a drive that he shucked, but he definitely modified the drive by breaking the pin off, which was quite a clever (laughs) solution. Well, now that
0: is physical damage. I don't do that. I do the captain tape or I just snip the 3 bolt rail on the power supply cable.
1: I wanted it fixed forever. And let's be honest, I'm never sending it in. I'm never going to do that. We also didn't have any tape. Yeah, yeah, we did look for the tape, and I'm like, screw this,
3: break. <laughs> now, Alex, I'm curious, what did you end up doing with the cable? Which one, the faulty cable? Yes, the faulty one. Did you just put it back in your drawer with the others? I think I might
0: have done. Oh, no. Alex. Who knows? It's a mystery box of fun next time there's a drive problem. <laughs> yeah, right? So here's my solution to the 3.3. Uh, this, I'm showing the live stream on camera. I, I just cut the 3-volt cable in my SATA. Like, I have these, like... You, you plug one SATA cable in here, power cable in, and, you, and then you get four like power plugs here. And if you just cut the three volt wire here, this one, then you don't have to worry about Captain Tape or you know physically damaging your drives. You just run them all off these. There must be some voltage going through those. Could they like arc or something? Do you do anything to? There's some electrical tape on it, but well, I mean it's three I'm volts. Sure, that's fine. Yeah, it's three volts. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. yeah. So fine. it's at most it's going to be like a little tingle. I don't mean for you, I just wondered, you know, Maybe I should protection.
1: try licking it next time.
0: See what happens. The
3: old the old D cell test.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's more fun just to leave it uncapped and that way next time you're rooting around in the case, just a little a little you know <laughs> like I'm operation. I've got a question <laughs> for for you guys with
0: wedding rings and stuff. Like whenever I'm digging around in a PC that's on, I will take my wedding ring off because there was one time at the Apple store where I didn't and I actually shorted out a customer's motherboard.
2: <laughs> it hurt quite a bit too. I have never taken my wedding ring off to do any hardware work. The watch sometimes the watch sometimes I will if I'm like, you know, rooting around deep inside the case and physically can't reach wherever I am. But I've never had to take, I've never had it arcing from my ring. I have to take off the watch. I don't
1: like the watch on the wrist when like, you know, the edge of the case and I'm rooting around in there and I'm smacking the, the watch up against those sharp edges, scratches it all up. Same when I'm like working on like a project in the RV, I have to take the, the watch off. I actually don't wear the ring though anymore. I just sort of gave up on that. My whole body size changes all the time. And so I'd I'd go from like a, a ring that was too tight to a ring that was too loose. This is also why I
2: became a suspenders guy. <laughs> See, I learned my lesson. My parents used to have those old school Christmas lights and I was always the one putting up the Christmas lights and there were enough times where I broke the bulb and was trying to get it out and I stupidly did not unplug the strand and I shocked myself more times than I care to admit.
1: Well, it's one of those things that once it happens you watch out for it for the rest of your life, I imagine, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, It definitely is. I think the the thing that zapped me was one of the MagSafe uh, nineteen volt things. Oh god. Like a laptop. And yeah, it, it's it's done quite a bit and that actually there was a it took a little bit out of my wedding ring like there's a little notch in it you can just see oh man yeah
3: that's your near miss that
0: i had to fill out accident
1: report forms and all i they sent me home and that's just like an awkward (laughs) conversation when you come home too it's like oh well i kind of damaged my wedding ring honey (laughs) yeah oh well we got some boosts into the show last week we got some people boosting both good and bad things into the show Rubikman, uh, Rubikman, Rubikman, right, Rubikman, think he says, my wife and I are moving to a new apartment soon. We have permission from the landlord to install a camera pointed at the parking lot. Can you recommend one that works with Home Assistant for a decent price? Now, he doesn't tell us what his connectivity situation is. So what are your thoughts, Alex? You could just get a dog and point that at the car park, <laughs> you know, <laughs>
0: that would bark quite a bit. I mean, the obvious choice, uh, despite all their flaws, really,
1: uh, the cams. Yeah, that's what I was probably gonna say too. We're actually gonna have our, our next boost here that kind of makes it that makes them even more appealing. Uh, Sexy Pants boosted in for two hundred and ten sats. So this dropped on Reddit yesterday. It supports USB Ethernet adapters, tail scale, and it runs an RTMP server. It'll even make you tacos. Well, maybe not that, but it's essentially a series of uh, wise hacks that I think make these cameras even more compelling, especially when you can com- when you combine it with something like WiseBridge. Uh, so I have a link in the show notes to a GitHub repo that lets you essentially root the devices and get more out of them. Can you imagine the possibilities of running tail scale on the camera itself? That's cool. That opens up a whole new kind of like, well, it's a whole new world, as they say. The other cameras, as far as like just connect them to Wi-Fi and they have decent apps that also work with Home Assistant, is the uh, Circle? However, I've had mixed results with that, but that's also another option. If you have a recommendation for a cheap, portable camera uh, that's easy to power and easy to get connected, send us a boost and let us know.
2: I actually have a good one. The uh, Eufy cams, I've actually been a huge fan of. They are basically the same price as the Wise ones. They come built in with RTSP. They're running throughout my house. I have about six of them. I have the doorbell, and they work just fine and i also hear in the
1: homekit community that they work really well with homekit setup as well haven't tried it but that does sound good
3: sir lurks a lot wrote in with two boosts the first one reads autonomous spinning blades Ugh, homeowner's liability insurance coverage or not i would be uneasy about this robomower running unsupervised which is all too likely i fear psa Lawnmowers are not toys and can cause serious harm to both critters and children. Never mind stupid adults. This ain't a silly vacuum. Just think bloody toes and see how that sits before deploying. Situations vary, of course. Just
1: remain aware that unplanned lawn intrusions and obstacles do happen. I mean, it's actually a fair point. So last week we talked about a robot lawnmower and none of us actually mentioned the safety angle of it. However, I think it's just kind of an assumed that people would be careful with this kind of thing. But then uh, Lurksalot had another boost for us, too.
3: They continue, Oh, so I finally saw the video of this Open More project.
1: I imagined something much larger
3: and dangerous from a DIY project. While I still believe in safety first, this does not conjure quite the nightmare scenarios I had imagined when I hadn't seen the thing yet.
1: Yeah, it's more like uh, the size of a vacuum. There was a, speaking of those little robot vacuums, a uh, local town here in Washington, Bellevue. A homeowner called the cops because they thought somebody had broken into their house. A burglar was in the house with them, and they were panicked. Turned out, robot vacuum wasn't actually a burglar. Oh gosh!
2: I'm actually thinking so. I'm, I'm as I said, getting a new house, and it's going to be have like almost an acre of land. I'm actually looking at some of these robo mowers just because I don't want to have to mow that much land. Seriously, you're just going to have to get a lawn tractor, dude.
0: And uh just be done with it just just admit it
2: i don't want one because they basically cost the same like they're like twenty five hundred dollars and the robot mowers are like twenty five hundred dollars and they'll install it for me for free has anyone told you that you get to sit on top of a giant engine and
0: go rum brum, 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 as you go along they're so much fun says the guy
2: who hasn't an, as an, an ev yeah no oh okay all right well you can get electric ones too yeah, those are even more expensive. But yeah, no, I I actually have been looking at the, the these robomowers, and I actually want one because they actually do have a safety thing where if you pick them up, they actually shuts off.
1: Ah, uh, sure. Okay. That's good to know, too. Yeah, I'd, want, I'd be looking at one, too. Crashmaster18 wrote in, said he really liked the live format we did last week. Having multiple people on, too, hopes it sticks. And he also likes the idea of the open mower. He hopes that we'll give him an update if one of us picks one up. <laughs> <laughs> It'll turn off if you do that. Right.
0: Don't pick one up. And the final bit of feedback for this week, Cas Peland writes in with 3,690 sats. Thanks for the show. Nice and simple. Well,
1: thank you, cars Thank you very much. You think 3,690 sats mean something? Because sometimes that, they mean something. There's a 69 in there.
3: I, I think it's like 3 plus 3,
1: 6 plus 3, 9. Oh, could be a math thing. To me, I was thinking like the GTX graphics, like a video card kind of thing. But, oh, it could be. I don't know. All right, we did get an email, in. JVP just wanted to give us a review on his end of Frigate, the uh, NVR created by Bearded Tech in our community. And he said, I did hear about it here on the show. I have to say the Docker Compose setup was super easy. I have five PoE 4K cameras that come with an advertised on-camera person detection. Hmm. I'm using this on an older laptop with a Core i7, and it actually runs quite well. Frigate not only outperforms the stupid (laughs) phone home app that these cameras came with, but with the Home Assistant integration, it's really cool. And I'm looking forward to making some integrations with lights soon. Plus, I can view my cameras through the HA app, Home Assistant app, outside my house without sharing another service or having to open another port. So there you go. He says, I'm about to block these cameras from the Internet. And I'll just use it all with Frigate Plus. Uh, so Frigate NVR is a project our community mem- member, Bearded Tech, is working on. And these cameras... Well, JVP didn't give us the model. So JVP, you'll have to write back and tell us what the model is, because maybe those are the ones Fuzzy's looking for. Now, as always, I want to give a big thanks to
0: our site reliability engineers, our subscribers. You do make this show possible over at self sre We've also got a network-wide membership at jupiter.party as well to support not only this show, but all the other JB fine shows like Linux Unplugged,
1: Linux Action News, and Coda Radio. Absolutely. And, of course, you can always send us a boost with a podcasting 2.0 app. Go get a new podcast app at newpodcastapps.com. Go get more Brentley at linuxunplugged.com. And catch Fuzzy on our Discord at selfhosted.show slash Discord. And I'm at ChrisLAS on the Twitter. I'm
0: over there at IronicBadger for the time being. But uh, who knows what that crazy spaceman is going to do with it. Uh, We'll have to see on that one.
1: Maybe we'll finally get a Mastodon user out of you yet. Maybe.
0: Maybe. Maybe. Probably not. Maybe, (laughs) baby. Uh, One other plug that I meant to do, I almost forgot, is um, we're actually going to be starting a new initiative on the uh, off weeks of self-hosted. So uh, this show is coming out on the 6th of May, so it will be the, what, the 6 plus 7th? What's 6 plus 7? 13.
1: That's my birthday.
0: (laughs) I'm not doing it on my birthday. birthday. Oh, damn it. Do it the day before.
1: Oh, well. Do it on the day we do it live. We do the show live on Wednesdays now every
0: other week. Now, I wanted to talk about a new initiative that uh, we're going to be doing in between the live shows that we've started doing now. So that is, we're going to take a look at the awesome self-hosted list. As a community, I think we can help improve this thing, right? And we'll take a look at a specific category. We'll hang out on the live stream for an hour or two and just try out some of these apps as a group and figure out which ones work which ones don't work which links are dead which uh, applications aren't on that list that should be that kind of stuff and eventually try and make the awesome self-hosted list awesome again you know awesomer yeah maybe we should get little hats with that on little red hats with uh make self-hosted awesome list great again or something i don't know i don't I have some notes on that idea maybe we'll refine that there's probably some merchandise in that somewhere but we'll see I think that'll probably do us for the show today. Uh, so thanks for listening, everybody. That was self-hosted.show slash 70.
1: So I imagine there's been some really
0: good eating going on over there. Well, it all started when you guys came to town. I, I tried a new, uh, what's called a double indirect method in the ceramic egg. For the ribs and
1: they turned out fantastic
0: yeah uh there's a there's a smoking dad barbecue channel which he applies science to barbecue cooking so like i
1: love it like an elton brown kind of thing
0: yeah exactly the basic gist is that a ceramic egg cooks in a different way to a st- traditional stick burner with all of you know there's there's less air velocity going over the food the fire is different. The heat comes from the top because it's a ceramic egg, so it's radiant heat instead of just transient heat from the fire, all that kind of stuff. And so you need to cook differently. And the, the, the ceramic eggs are so efficient in how they cook the food that if you try and run one of these Kamado Joes or a big green egg or something like that, if you try and run that at like 220 Fahrenheit, really low temperatures for 6, 8, 10, 12 hours it's bare. the fire's barely going to be going and so there's going to be almost no airflow going through that thing and the upshot is is that the fire doesn't burn very cleanly and so the smoke you actually get into the food has a bit of a bitter taste to it almost creosote like in in sometimes huh. and so the downside of that is that you know you've got this expensive high performance cooking machine that can't cook food low and slow which seems a bit contrary to its purpose right <laughs> and so when you guys were there i thought right i'm gonna try i'm gonna try a new method and i tried the double indirect slightly warmer rib method so i normally do three two one with my ribs i do three hours naked two hours wrapped in foil like steamed and then an hour to kind of crisp crisp them up
1: okay oh, right, hold on all right so three two one so okay uh say it again i want to memorize that cause that's good i like this so three hours naked two hours wrapped did you say and then one hour in foil yep yep and then right and then one hour unwrapped so it crisps up yeah and you want to
0: source them for that final hour so they get some nice and tacky oh yeah
1: you do yeah you do alex
0: yeah you do (laughs) (laughs) but with the double indirect method the heat so so what happens is you have the fire at the bottom and then you put your ceramic heat deflectors in and then you have a like it's like this metal chrome x thing that goes on top which creates a gap and then i had a pizza stone for my egg so i put that up on top next that sounds <laughs> like a triple indirect no because it, it's there's, there's only two bits of ceramic heat deflector between <laughs> the food and the fire and so what that does is it insulates the meat itself from the heat of the fire and it only cooks from the kind of like the radiant heat that's coming and, and it's a lot more controlled i didn't think it would make that much difference but it makes a huge difference. And so what uh, What I did this time was I did, I think it was... I think your
3: temperatures were at like 300 or so, 350.
0: Yeah. So typically I would do ribs at around 200, 180, 200, 220, something like that. But with the uh, the double indirect method, I'm cooking at like 300, 350 odd. Like it's an awful lot warmer.
3: We're talking US units as well. Here. Yeah,
0: Fahrenheit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Freedom um, units. But the thing is about that is it means there's a lot more airflow going through the fire, which means the charcoal burns and combusts more cleanly. But also, more importantly, the wood combusts more cleanly. So you put your little wood chunks in the little fire tray that you pull out the bottom and the heat from the fire is enough that they start smoldering just in the ash tray at the bottom. And because the smoke comes from the wood through the fire, it heats up, number one, and the velocity of the smoke is a lot higher, so it it's just cleaner, that beautiful blue, tasty,
1: delicious smoke. Oh, okay. Ooh, you're getting in so now you're getting into the nerdery of like getting just the right smoke. Oh yeah, you've got to, dude. That's where you want to be, man. That's where you wanna be. That's good. Alex has been very excited about this. He's
0: explained it to me now. This is the fourth time.
1: Yeah. yeah. Still
0: entertaining the fourth
3: time.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so with the double indirect method, they there can be a bit of an issue with a stall. When you guys were here, Chris, I had like a ninety minute stall where it just sat at like a hundred and seventy Celsius uh Fahrenheit. Uh you want your ribs to be somewhere in the two oh two to two oh six territory probing at the uh in the middle and they'll, they'll feel done when when they're ready. So instead of doing three, two, one, you actually just do two hours naked, one hour in a foil boat. And this is a different trick. Rather than wrapping the ribs, you kind of create a a boat around the ribs and then you pour a little bit of cider vinegar so they kind of steam from the bottom. You've still got the heat from the top. And so they they don't go all wet and kind of sloppy like the low and slow ones did. Once the foil boat is done, you want to remove them from the foil boat when they're probing at that 203, 205 sort of temperature. Mm-hmm. Then you source one side, take them out of the foil boat, source them, put them on the rib, let that tack up a bit. It takes about 10 minutes. Flip them over, source the other side, let that tack up again, 10, 15 minutes. Then you've got to wait. And this is the hardest part of the entire cook. You have to sit there, smell these ribs for 20 <laughs> minutes, let
1: them rest, and then you can dig in. <laughs> Yeah, you, that is the hardest part. What are you doing? Why are they just sitting there? <laughs> Good for you, though. Now, I found that
0: I needed to put a new piece of wood in the bottom of the ashtray every 30 to 45 minutes or so because the fire's burning hotter, it burns through the wood more quickly. And the other thing is, don't be tempted by the smoke chips, the, the wood chips. They're garners. Don't soak them either because when you soak them, they don't burn as cleanly because they don't warm up properly and the moisture content's too high so the smoke's mostly steam. So you want fist-size sort of chunks, maybe small fist-size chunks. Put them in the ashtray at the bottom, let them combust through the fire. And I tell
2: you, the best ribs you've ever had.
1: Is there any way we could get that thing out here? I'd love to get that big green.
2: I like my sous vide ribs. Oh yeah,
1: those are great too. They're, you know, but Alex's ribs were uh they were really kind of special. You know, they're like Sous vide ribs are good. Like Wes and I will do those here and then we'll finish them up on the grill and you know, you get a really good result without having to go through all of the effort and work and machinery that Alex went through, but it's not as good. I just don't think it's as good. There's just something special about that slow, smoked, cooked meat.
3: <laughs> Chris, Alex actually did another session after you left, and he said that session was, well, it was well, even better. I'll have to agree, because I did have a little bit. It was even better.
0: What? When when you were there I cooked at sort of two seventy five. But when Brent when I did the ones for Brent He says for me, I had a little the, the grill was accidentally <laughs> at three twenty five that day for some reason. I don't know why. It it just ran hot all day. And mm. they were better because it was hotter and the fire was and so I'm a total convert to No stall either, right? No stall, nothing like that. Mm. So three twenty five is the is kind of the sweet spot, I think.